Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Thanks for coming back again for another interview. Hope you've enjoyed those that you've already listened to and are looking forward to hearing from this week's guest. Just a word about sponsors, and I'm thrilled to announce that along with Messina Covers and the Eastman Music Company, we now have Pickett Blackburn as a sponsor. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, maybe even more so than other players. And if you've got an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers is where you need to go. Erica Howard and David Messina will help you design the ideal case and in some pretty crazy colors. They also offer mouthpiece pouch options and not just trumpet bags, but now you can get a case made for just about anything you can imagine. Be sure to check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And of course, with SE Shires, you now have the Q-Series and the professional models. The legendary Doc Severinsen even helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at eastmanwinds.com. And you can learn more about the SE Shires line of instruments at seshires.com. Pickett Blackburn has certainly established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance yet to try any of the stock or even some of the custom mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at pickettblackburn.com. And of course, the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn includes their incredible line of trumpets, endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Again, be sure to check them out at picketblackburn.com, and Picket is with two T's. Before we get to today's interview, just a reminder that you can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studio HFL. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studio HFL. There are four levels of support offered, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated. Please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studio HFL. And now on to today's interview. All right. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going very well. Yeah. You know, uh, of course, I've, I've, uh, it's going to sound like I'm stalking you. You know, I checked up <laughs> once I found out. Uh, Byron Stripling, of course, told me about you and, and what you were working on. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to talk to this guy, right? It worked out perfect. It Great. worked out perfectly, yeah. So so I'm in Indianapolis. Uh, where are you right now? Tom's River, New Jersey. I've heard of it. I have no idea where that is. <laughs> we were uh, unfortunately put on the map with the MTV Jersey Shore show about 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Snooky and all that. Yeah, we're I'm five minutes from the ocean, and so yeah. every uh, every summer between Memorial Day and uh, Labor Day, this is this is the place to be, and uh, yeah. like the good, the bad, and the ugly all all descend on. <laughs> so, it, does it still have that reputation for? I mean, I don't. That show's not been on for a while, right? No, but it's fine. It, it, oh, it always kind of had the reputation even before the show. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people. A lot of obnoxious people coming, you know, from all over, and mm -hmm. uh, the show just kind of amplified that. But the, the the show has mostly disappeared. Mm -hmm. But the uh, 
the meatheads and the loudmouth, <laughs> they right. still show up. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. So what's it, uh, what's it like out there these days? I imagine like it is everywhere else, right? A little bit of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, right? yeah. I mean, New Jersey took it pretty seriously, the virus from, from early on. So I think my last day of work was March 12th. My kids, last day of school was March 13th mm -hmm. and that was it um, we're in stage two of reopening so mm -hmm. some places are are uh, starting to do outdoor dining and you know we're going out a little bit more food shopping and everything always with the mask on um, mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll see what happens from here my wife's a school teacher and I've got three daughters and no one knows what September is going to bring yeah same here so it could you know we're in a decent place. You know, there's not too many cases. There's not too many deaths. But, uh, you know, the numbers everywhere else are, are frightening. So it's yeah. just yeah. like, you know. Well, the states, what, Florida, Texas, and, uh, well, at least those two, right? I mean, a huge spike yeah. in this last week. and Exactly. Yeah, so, And it's funny. We actually, when you uh, first reached out to me, we were in Florida. <laughs> oh. we, we go down every year. We usually rent a place. And all my kids, yeah, they're young. All they care about is the pool. And we told them early on, <laughs> we're not going to the mall. We're not going to the movies. Everything's closed. But yeah. if you want to change a scenery, we'll rent a place. We'll drive down and go in the pool every day. We can order some food. You know, it'll be a, like a relaxed little getaway. Mm -hmm. And everybody said, let's do it. So in early May, we found a place and we mm -hmm. figured we'll drive down and wear masks and gloves and just, you know, get there and park ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then it was the week we were there that every day the news kept saying, Florida, oh, wow. Florida. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we've been back now eight or nine days and we're all feeling fine. So I think I think we dodged a bullet. Um, well, OK, so, you know, I kind of want to jump into this, but uh, I want to know more about you and like. Uh, you know, are you a trumpet player? Are you a musician of a certain kind? You know, I'm, the meaning, are you a low brass guy? And, and should I? No, uh, I'm, I'm a piano man. I, I've been playing piano the piano since I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, no, no great fame or anything. But mm -hmm. when, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I formed my own little trio. And uh, that eventually became a duo. But from about the years 2000, to about 2017. I mean, I, I had my regular restaurant gigs and, oh, cool. you know, oh, wow. stuff like that. Uh, mostly in Jersey, mostly with friends, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, I know so many people because of my Armstrong work and, you know, I guess the, the secret gets out sometimes. So I've been fortunate enough to hang in with the heavyweights. You know, I, I've sat in at Preservation Hall. I've sat in oh, Birdland, nice. you know, Wycliffe Gordon and people like that. So, you know, I could hang moderately with that crew. Uh, but about two or three years ago, the one steady gig that I had for about 10 years, the restaurant just decided to go with, uh, you know, play the radio instead of paying for music. And um, I'm so busy, you know, between work and book and the commute and the wife and kids that now it's become like a glorified hobby. And especially now in the pandemic, it's, it's you know, like everybody else it disappeared. But even before this, you know, I would go down to New Orleans two or three times a year and sit in with all my friends down there. But um, yeah, it's never it's never the kind of thing that was my my day gig. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but obviously good yeah. enough to be able to hang with those kind of guys. I mean, that's yeah. It's always been one of those things. If if I felt, I always felt like if I took it more seriously, if I just mm -hmm. 
you know, practiced, <laughs> which would be part one, I guess, uh, and stuff like that. And then maybe uh, I could have pushed myself a little more. But I, I love writing and I love teaching and I love all that stuff. And there was one time before we had kids, I, I, I formed a duo with like a Sinatra type singer. And you can imagine that stuff. They eat it up here in oh, yeah. Jersey. And that guy, he was a lot older than me. And that was his like occupation. And so he said, you know, we're going to work. I said, sure. And he was booking like four or five gigs a week. And oh, nice. that it was nice. But I realized after doing that, I said, this is, you know, I want my one or two gigs a month, you know, give me my steadies. Um, I just felt like I wasn't cut out for, you know, you know, different, different restaurants every night and pushing, pushing, leaving leave my wife and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. piano playing has always been uh, the bottom of the list, but I do love it. And, you know, I, I do think it gives me some, um, I don't know if expertise is the right word, but yeah, coming in at the music as from a musician, you know, it's different than just being a historian. You know, I kind of, mm-hmm. I know what they're trying to get at. And, and my wife and kids did buy me a trumpet for Father's Day about three years ago, but the noises that came out of it were so grisly and uh, it was, it was hysterical. And, you know, that you need to be a, a do you play trumpet? Oh yeah, yeah that's <laughs> okay. what I do. You know, there you go. So, you know, you know what I'm talking about, you know, just pushing that thing into your mouth all night long. I mean, you know, the, the endurance and the strength. And at that point, I realized I've been playing the piano for 30 years. I think I'll, I'll stick to that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got a question. I just remember now when I was talking to Byron and he mentioned your name, of course. <laughs> yeah. And you know where I'm headed with this, probably, because, you know, there's a certain generation that has no idea. They wouldn't, right. they wouldn't uh, blink twice. But of course, I grew up watching watching I Love Lucy and Ricky Ricardo, yep. right? Yep. And so, I mean, it's so close, right? <laughs> One letter. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm just curious. Uh, it, does that happen all the time? Every yeah, I would say almost every day. Um, oh my gosh! The, I'm sorry I brought that. Up. No, 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 no. It's <laughs> it's it's one of those things that almost got reversed over the years. Like when I was in high school and all, it almost felt like a curse. You know, <laughs> I would go to the doctor's mm-hmm. office. There was one one story I like to tell. My freshman year of high school, my yearbook was stolen. I was in the cafeteria during lunch. I went to get my food. I came back to my table. My bag was open. The yearbook was gone. And so I ran over to the, the teachers were all sitting there. And they were like, oh, my God, you know, tell us your name and, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll look for it. It's a Ricky Riccardi. And they just burst into hysterics. <laughs> oh, maybe Fred and Ethel took it. Maybe it's at the club. And I, like, <laughs> I just had to sit there and take it. So for a while, I'm like, oh, you know, and I, I would give my parents. Yeah, I would tease them. I'm like, yeah, really? Because the, the story, it's not even that interesting of a story. My grandfather, his name was Dominic. Actually, his Italian name was Donato, and then Americanized to Dominic, but everybody called him Riccardi. That got shortened to Rick. And so to everybody who knew him, he was Grandpa Rick, Grandpa Ricky. And so he died while my mother was pregnant. And so they said, oh, we have to name the baby after after my dad's father. And they actually had, apparently, the conversation for 20 seconds. Like, well, what do we name it? Dominic, Donato? Well, everybody knew him as Rick. So I'm not a Richard. This will name will name the baby Ricky, and they had like the fleeting thought, you know, I love Lucy. You know, it's already been 30 years. You know, who's gonna know that show in the future? Everybody, <laughs> Everybody. my kids, my kids love it. So um, it wasn't until I got into the world of writing and lecturing and kind of getting my name out there that I realized, oh everybody remembers it you know I, I might have to take a joke or two and you know it's always good natured but 
you know, it's it's good to have a name that that people can at least uh, you know remember, even if it's for a, a, a sitcom character. <laughs> but what a what a great hook, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and if and if it's not something that uh, that terrorizes you, right? You know, exactly. That's, it's it's great, you know, to embrace it, and I think it's almost instant name recognition because it stuck with me right away. Yeah, you know, know? people don't forget it. It's yeah. uh, it's great. Just one week ago, I run all the Armstrong House social media pages, and we got a a, a private message from a I won't name him, but a well-respected musician who I, I never knew, but I'm, I'm a fan of. And he said, "Listen, I have five letters that Louis Armstrong wrote in 1933. Would you like them scanned?" And he 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 thought he was just writing to the blank page. And so I wrote back. I said, "Oh, you know, please, I would love to see the scans. Here's my email address. My name's Ricky Riccardi. Boom." And I, all I got was a one-line email uh, message back saying, "Are you married to Lucille Ball?" I said. <laughs> That's, a, that's the whole response. Yeah, so you're not married to a Lucille or Lucy, are you? No, okay. no, that that would have been that would have been taken too far. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm I'm fascinated on several levels here. One is, of course, the the subject that you've been writing about, Louis Armstrong. Um, and I'm I've got a huge question: Is it Louis or Louis? We'll get. Ah, but yeah, know, the other. Oh, sorry, I was going to say my other angle is, um, you know, just the writing aspect. It's like. Yeah, uh, so I want to talk about that too, but um, so I'm saying that out loud, so one of us will remember. Got it. You know, along, <laughs> Good to know. Line. So okay, so you want to address the Lewis and Louis? Yeah, um, I'm I'm kind of a, a pacifist when it comes to this because some people get really up in arms. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I personally go with Lewis because having listened to all the tapes and all the interviews, he always gave his name as Lewis. He mm -hmm. gave one interview in the '40s in which he said, "My mother never called me Louis." And then when he did Hello, Dolly, the producer, uh, Mickey Cap, wanted him to change the words to Hello, Dolly, it's Louie Dolly. And apparently Armstrong rasped back, you know, it's Louis. And then when you hear the song, he says, Hello, Dolly, this is Louis. And he holds that S. So for that reason, <laughs> I tend to go with Louis. Having said that, Louis didn't bother him. All of his wives called him Louie. His manager, Joe Glazer, called him Louie. The musicians, I've heard interviews with Trummy Young and Barney Begard, and I've interviewed a bunch of the, you know, when they were still around, the surviving members of the band, they all called him Louie. He recorded Laughing Louie. He recorded Louie's Dreams. So I think Louie was something that didn't bother him, but he preferred Louis. So with that in mind, I tend to go with Lewis, but I don't walk around correcting the Louis people. I know some people who do, and they bring me into arguments. They're like, oh, this guy thinks his name is Louis. Set him straight. And I, I go, well, you know, you can call him what you want. As long as you're talking about him, I'm happy. That's a great answer because both are right. It's like either, either, neither, neither, right. you know, along that line. Uh, but it's it's nice to hear that there's some historical uh there, the tapes are out there, right? That, that oh yeah, where he's actually saying that. So, uh, I think to me that's definitive. Um, yeah, I'll probably still call him Louis at some point, right? I, I I bounce back. I catch myself sometimes. Sometimes I'm yeah, you know, you're telling a story or something. And it's you know, it might be humorous or whatever. And Louis just seems a little more informal. Uh, I mean, I, I liken it to me and my name on the birth certificate's Ricky Riccardi. I give my name as Ricky. I don't walk around saying I'm Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. But a lot of people do call me Rick, and I've never corrected them. And I have some family members who just gravitated towards Rick. And it's like, that's fine. And, you know, I hope 50 years after I'm dead, people are arguing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what did he prefer? Ricky or Rick? You know? Well, my name's Larry. It's not Lawrence. You know, there you um, go. So it's the same thing. People will call me Lawrence. And it uh, doesn't bother me. 
Yep. Right? And I just say, yeah, you know, by the way, have you written anything prior to this? Yeah, my, my first book, the, the, the book that Byron knows and loves came out in 2011. And that was about Armstrong's later years. And then I have another book coming out this summer, which is about the big band years. And so I never, um, I never thought I would write multiple books. And I, I never thought I would go backwards and <laughs> in reverse chronology. But it's actually been working out pretty well. It's been, a, it's been an incredible experience. Well, okay. So even pr prior to that first book, um, where, where'd the writing bug oh. get you? The writing bug was always there. That, that's what I knew I wanted to do. I don't know how. I read a lot as a kid, and I, I read a ton of nonfiction. You know, uh, as soon as I was fifth grade, sixth grade, if I was into baseball, if I was, you know, if I saw a comedian I liked, a movie I liked, I, you know, I went to the library, checked out the books, read all the books, and so reading was huge with me, and research was huge. My sixth grade teacher, Mr. Kukaris, always said, you know, you're going to be a researcher one day because he would give me these you know, pre-internet questions, you know, can, what can you find out about, you know, some obscure baseball player? And, oh, I would love that. Um, and then in high school, my sophomore year, I needed an elective and journalism sounded like fun. I took the class and, you know, the teacher who was also my English teacher, so she wasn't even like a professional journalist, but she's going over the basics and here's a lead paragraph, here's that, and here's this. And, uh, you know, not bragging or whatever, but from like the first thing I wrote, they were like, okay, you know, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay. And so by junior year, senior year of high school, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I didn't think a book writer. I was really into uh, sports at the time. And I thought newspaper columns would be a lot of fun. I ended up going to college and I became the, I went to, my first two years at Ocean County College in Tom's River, New Jersey, I became editor-in-chief of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And Tom's mm -hmm. River is the least jazz-savvy town in America. <laughs> but I said, you know what? I'm editor-in-chief. I'm going to do what I want. And I started writing uh, a jazz column. And I would review reissues and put the spotlight on these obscure dead musicians. Like my first column actually was on Lester Young. It wasn't on Lewis. But my second column was on Lewis. And that actually won some statewide like collegiate press awards and so i knew that writing was going to be it and truthfully my bachelor's is in journalism and uh, my master's is in jazz history and research and so writing and research has always been my one-two punch and um you know i i will say my style i'm a storyteller i think that's the journalistic background um when i went to rutgers and got that masters i took a class called jazz literature which i was really excited mm -hmm. about but every single uh week we had to read basically these kind of academic journal articles you know filled with jargon mm -hmm. and this and that and they were so dense and so hard to get through and so the jargon was so thick and right then and there, I said, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then I would read great analysis, you know, Gunther Schiller and people transcribing solos and analyzing them. You know, every time he gets to the turnaround, he plays it. Oh, that's brilliant. Not my area of expertise. But I do, um, I do like telling stories. And Louis Armstrong's life is just story after story. You can come at it from a music angle, from race angle, from showbiz, from media, from comedy and uh, organized crime, marijuana, whatever you talk about, you know, his life kind of touches everything. And so I just was fortunate enough to kind of sink my teeth into a subject uh, in which there's limitless stories. And so I think that's one thing that kind of binds the first book and the second book, which 
not very many people have read besides my editor in a, a small circle, but they all, that was, that was the most important feedback that even my editor came back to me. He said, it read like you were in front of a room just telling stories. I said, ah, oh, good. You know, that's, you know, I, I try to write for a wide audience and I think there are some people who might see a book about, you know, with laser beam focus on a 18 year period in Louis Armstrong's life and go, well, that's, that's not for me. But then you dig in and there is organized crime and there's, you know, Armstrong getting arrested. And he blows out his lip and his career is at rock bottom and he has to hire a mobster and, you know, navigate the changing landscape and break down these barriers. And, and so, you know, I, I think I think his story is exciting enough and interesting enough that it could lure just about anybody in. Did you know some of that? Is that something that drew you to him as a subject to write about or what was no, it that, that hooked you? Um, what the music hit me first i i was 15 years old and i saw the glenn miller story and he comes out and does basin street blues and i knew of him because i've always had kind of an obsession with old pop culture so um, you know i i was the only 15 year old in tom's who were going through a jimmy stewart phase at that point which is why i stumbled on that movie and so he comes out and i said oh this guy's great you know i love the voice i love the persona i love the trumpet playing and said, I need to hear more. And that's when I went to the local library here in Tom's River. And I checked out a cassette compilation of his 1950s recordings. And no music had ever hit me so hard. Like each track was just, you know, by the track 14 was this nine minute version of St. Louis Blues from Louis Armstrong plays WC Handy. And as the last couple of choruses built and built and built, I felt like something shift in my brain. And I said, well, that's it. You know, I'll never be the same. And so at that point, though, I knew nothing of his life that's when I started going back to the library and doing the thing I'd been doing since elementary school. All right, now I need to research this guy's life. And I didn't know where to start. And coincidentally, the few books I grabbed and even some of the liner notes, I, I would read these veiled comments about Louis Armstrong was a great genius at the 1920s. He changed the shape of jazz. But come 1929, he became a pop singer and a comedian and a clown and he failed his own talent and he sold out and he went commercial and he was soft on race and he was an Uncle Tom, the end. And I would read that and I'd be like, boy, you know, the music of the 50s and 60s is what hooked me. Why are all these people kind of denigrating? And then I went back, I heard the stuff from the 20s and 30s, had my mind blown, but the seed was planted that, you know, why aren't people picking up on this? Then I read Gary Giddens and I read Dan Morgenstern. I read people who defended later Armstrong. I said, all right, I'll, I'll follow those guys. But in 1997, so this is two years later, so the, 95 was the big bang that in 97, Lawrence Bergreen put out nearly a 500 page book, which he spent... 424 pages in Armstrong's life from 1901 to 1943. And I was riveted. Yeah, this is I was learning all these stories and everything. But then from the last 70 pages covered the last 28 years of Armstrong's life. It was like the fast forward button. And that was the light bulb moment. I was, I guess, a sophomore in high school. I graduated in 99. And that was the moment when I said, you know what? people are missing a story, you know, they're via, yeah, cause I've been reading Gary Giddens, reading Dan, reading other people and knowing a little bit about Lewis and Little Rock and Lewis speaking out about injustice. And I, I just felt like people were missing the boat and that the early life was incredible, but why did his life seem to end like in 1928? And so the driving force from that moment on was I need to tell the story of the later years. And so that first college, I went to Ocean County College. I was in an honors program. I need to write a um, 
not quite a thesis. They called it a research paper. And everybody was doing like 30, 40 page papers. And I wrote 125 pages on Lewis's later years. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Rutgers, got the bachelor's in journalism. That was kind of going through the motions. Yeah, that was easy. But then I went to Rutgers Newark and got the master's in jazz history and research. And day one, Professor Lewis Porter, who wrote all these great books, and Lester Young and John Coltrane, he says, yeah, everyone needs to write a thesis. Yeah, does anyone have any ideas for their topic? arm shot up as Louis Armstrong's later years and he was immediately like you know what that's interesting you know no one covers the later years and so Rutgers Newark was on campus with Dan Morgenstern right there the Institute of Jazz Studies right there mm-hmm. and so um, I interviewed Dan and then I have found there was five surviving all-stars and I got to Danny Barcelona the drummer and Martin Napoleon the pianist and Joe Moraney the clarinetist and Buddy Catlett the bassist and Jewel Brown the vocalist got all their stories and I wrote a 350 page master's thesis on the later years uh, which was unfinished and actually I, I ended in 1961 and Lewis Porter said what are you doing? <laughs> 350 pages is a little out of control. You know, save it for the book, save it for the book. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated in 05. And then that, that's actually where personally I hit it kind of a dead end because I just gotten married. I got my master's degree. I taught a year of undergrad and I said, well, look out world. Here, here I come. I, I, I dreamed of this life of writing a book and writing, you know, columns for downbeat and teaching at some university and playing the piano on the side and everything's going to be great. Uh, but there was, you know, God bless jazz history and research, but it's not exactly a booming lucrative field. <laughs> and right. so I spent the years 05 to 09, my full-time job, I was a house painter as my father's business. He was a painting contractor and that was always my summer gig, but I needed money. And so that paid the bills. Um, but I realized that, you know, and my father also realized you know, he would say, I didn't put you through college to be a house painter. So I knew it was temporary. But that was some of the best years of my life because I knew I needed to establish a reputation. So I, I hired an agent in 2006. We put together a book proposal. The thing was rejected by every single publisher <laughs> in existence. Uh, but then I realized, all right, well, nobody knows who I am. So 2007, I started a blog. And this is where the house painting came in handy because I had my old iPod classic and I would listen to Armstrong morning, noon, and you know, just rolling walls, rolling ceilings, listening to Armstrong. And I would make these connections. Oh, God, you hear that? Yeah, he changed the solo there. Wow, I never heard that version. And then I would go home and blog about it. And for months, nobody knew uh, it was there. But then eventually I heard from some Armstrong people in Europe and Terry Teachout was writing his Armstrong book at the time. He found the blog and he started writing to me. And the blog was enough to get me enough of a reputation that I started going to New Orleans and giving lectures, but I'm still painting houses every day. And um, the big difference was I started going to the Louis Armstrong archives at Queens College and listening to the tapes and doing all the research with the unheard stuff. And in 2008, I rewrote the proposal, the book proposal, we put it back out. And at this time, Pantheon, which was part of Random House, they picked up on it, they, they purchased the, the book in 2008. So I was good on that front, but all I needed now was a day job. And the Louis Armstrong Archives got a grant to hire a project archivist in 2009. And I had no library training in the world, but I, I knew the staff pretty well. And Michael Cogswell, who just passed away in April, I mean, he really built that place up from the ground. He was a good friend. And so um, they invited me to apply for it, and I got the job. 
And so since 2009, I've been in charge for Louis Armstrong Archives, the world's largest archives for a single jazz musician. And then the book came out in 2011. It's called What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Louis Armstrong's Later Years. And at that point, you know, you could hear the dramatic music swelling, roll the credits. I'm like, I did it. <laughs> I don't know how, but I'm, I'm making a living through Louis Armstrong. And the book came out and was very well received. And uh, I thought, well, everything that happens after here is gravy. And, um, you know, things I've been fortunate enough to do, I've been able to produce all these Armstrong reissues for Mosaic Records, for Universal. I do feel like, yeah, not just because of me, I'm not alone in this thing, but there is uh, more respect being paid towards Armstrong's later years. So I feel great about that. But the new book, um, what happened with that is I started giving lectures and stuff and I realized that, okay, jazz musicians and students and educators know the hot fives and hot sevens because they they're almost forced to mm -hmm. and now there's like this newfound respect for the later years and satch plays fats and louis and ella and stuff like that but there's a middle chunk where he's got the big band and he's recording for deca and okay and rca victor and he's just like superman on that trumpet and his vocals are changing the world and you know and his personal life he's breaking down all these barriers and everything else and i said wait a minute nobody knows that period and it was kind of like another light bulb moment it was about three years ago that it hit me i said all right my first book started in 1947 and went to his death in 71. I always say that, yeah, the critics and the educators and musicians always, they always signal out 1928 as like Lewis's, you know, glory period. So what if I started another book in 29, <laughs> like the day after the glory period, but I end that book in 47. So I would have two mm -hmm. books that kind of blend together. Um, and I, all of a sudden I got really excited. And so um, the same agent I've had since 2006, we wrote another proposal and this time Oxford University Press, um, they went with it. And so now just looking forward to uh, spreading the glories of this middle period. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the, I thought it was a short version. It ended up being a long version. Well, I'll say again, I'm grateful for the long version of that. You know, that's, <laughs> that's better. I mean, that's a great amount of information, but it's making me think you've got so much information at hand. When you go to do a lecture, you know, maybe is it an hour, you know, how do you, how do you choose or, or do you already know when you're going what you're going to speak on? It's a combination uh, what it took a while to get here in the beginning, my goodness, I would have a lecture and I would prepare for these things. I would write notes. I would almost script script it and then I would rehearse it and time it. And this is like early 05, 06, 07. And then my wife was the one who noticed that when I would give the lecture, I never looked down. <laughs> I never looked at the notes and I wasn't, scripted you know and so it took me a while to kind of realize that you know i'm the delivery boy but lewis is always going to deliver so i need to know my stuff and mm -hmm. i need to fi figure out a way to present it that's entertaining but i could really go up there and say almost anything once i hit the play button and he takes over you know crowds are going to go crazy so um it took a while though, because I'm so immersed in the jazz world that when I first started giving lectures outside of the jazz world, you know, classes would come to the Armstrong archives or I would be invited to a school. I assumed that everybody could hear what I heard. And so my early lectures, I would be like, and then in 1927, Louis Armstrong took one of the greatest solos of all time on Potato Head Blues. Let's listen to it. And I would play it 
and I would look in the crowd and, you know, these college students were half asleep. And then I realized that, you know, it's one of the tragedies of this country, but no one really understands, you know, music or very few people play music. And if you're not a musician, a trumpet solo from 1927, you know, what does that mean to you? And so it took bombing a couple of times at that before I realized that the thing that really makes Armstrong pop is putting him in context. So now when I do lectures, I'll, I'll play um, like white pop singers of the 20s. So then I'll play Armstrong and I'll play, you know, some of the stiffer kind of cornet players and other ones. And then I'll play Armstrong. And that always gets a response, whether it's, you know, someone walking up the street or whether it's somebody um, who's heard this stuff a billion times. You know, they always respond to that. So to answer your question, I have a master playlist of you know it starts off with what did lewis here in new orleans here's a some of the king oliver stuff here's some fletcher henderson stuff here's what you need to know with the hot fives here's what you need to know west end blues here's how he changed singing here's some highlights from later in his career and then i always have a flash drive with you know maybe diner from 1933 maybe a later version of black and blue if i'm going to talk about civil rights but honestly, when I get up there, most of it is kind of going to be gauged on um, how long am I speaking for and what are they responding to? You know, there are some times I've started going down the trumpet route. And if it's a young college class and it's going right over their heads, I'll pivot right to the singing. And then if that doesn't do it, then I'll hit them with civil rights and little rock and race. And then I'm, I'm going to get them one way or the other. Cause it's not just me. It's Lewis. You know, I, I'm confident enough in the materials that, you know, he, like I said, he'll always deliver, but I try not to prepare too much. I guess you could say my whole life's been in preparation. You know, I've been, there's only been a couple of times where I've walked into a room cold and just like, you know, what do you want? 40 minutes? Let's do this. And then just improvise. I try to have a thematic thing, whether it's Armstrong 101 or, you know, something like that. But what comes out, I can't tell you until it comes out. <laughs> well, here we are at the middle of today's episode. Just a quick reminder about our sponsors. With Messina Covers, able to cover literally all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model all the way down to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now back to today's interview. I'm curious, you had contacted some of the surviving members of these bands. Right. Uh, did anybody ever say, no, that's not the way it was. Here's the way it was. Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty fortunate with that. that. This is the one thing that I'm very lucky because this, this could have derailed my whole career. <laughs> but I read those early books on Armstrong and a lot of people tried psychoanalyzing. They tried saying, Offstage, he must have been you know, a brooding artist, but he had to act like a clown and had to do these silly songs just to survive and make white audiences happy. And, you know, he lived this tragic existence in which he had to sell out his art for commerce. And I didn't buy that. And then I also, you know, was such a huge fan of his trumpet playing later on uh, in the 50s, I think is his greatest decade. Um, and then, yeah, everyone said, well, he was spent by 1928 and yeah, what he's doing later on, he's playing the same solos every night and blah, blah, blah. And so like my original master's thesis was kind of just like me out there in the wind being like, you know, no, you know, he was funny off stage and he, you know, did play great later on. And I, you know, just 
hoping and praying. And so where I was lucky was the five members of the All-Stars I talked to, plus Lewis himself. I ended up listening to just about all of those reel-to-reel tapes that he made. And that was the defining moment. After my thesis was done, I made my first research appointment at the Armstrong Archives. And the very first tape I ever put on was an interview in Benton Harbor, Michigan, 1956. And Lewis it was like my whole thesis, but it was coming out of his mouth. He was saying, yeah, I'm playing better than ever. And, you know, um, you know, people coming up to him saying that I remember when you used to really blow and he would say, man, if they would only listen, they'd be hearing the best horn I've ever played. And so that was the, the eye opening moment. And then I started talking to the musicians and I would test these theories with him. You know, did he really play the same solos every night? And they would say, well, you know, he, he would have a general routine, but you know, some nights he would go for himself. Some nights it would come out differently. You know, Hello Dolly, he had three different versions and the band had to listen to which mood he was in. Um, I would say, you know, was he um, angry off stage? You know, did he feel like he was, you know, being compromised? I said, no, no, you know, what are you kidding? You know, life was a party, you know, the, you know he, he was the most approachable celebrity I ever met. I would say, well, what about Joe Glazer? You know, did he work him too hard? Lewis wanted to work. Lewis was more than one musician told me that he talked openly about wanting to die on stage and how he hated retiring. He hated days off. He hated vacations. He wanted to be out there. If he had too many days off, he would call Joe Glazer and say, get me a gig. I need to start playing again. And so it was nice that I kind of held my breath with some preconceived notions. Like, you know, like I think these writers are getting it wrong. And then to have Lewis and his musicians kind of, you know, bail me out. Um, and at that moment, though, I guess my whole perspective changed. And I guess the first book and this current book, my big thing is letting Lewis speak for himself. You know, I still have my theories. I still, you know, try to get certain things in people's heads. But I feel like during his lifetime, he made these tapes. I mean, in the last 21 years of his life, we have about 750 tapes. And half of them are music. You know, he would make mixtapes to listen to on the road. And that, those are fascinating in and of themselves. But the other half are spoken word tapes. You know, Lewis and his wife, Lewis and friends, Lewis backstage, Lewis and fans, Lewis by himself. And those are the tapes where you get the full unvarnished, uncensored, you know, offstage Louis Armstrong. And the one thing I learned is the offstage Louis Armstrong is not much different than the onstage. There are mm -hmm. tapes where he's angry. There are tapes where he curses. There are tapes where he vents about being black in this country and tapes where he argues with his wife, sure. But the other 85% of the tapes, you know, if there's one other human in the room, I mean, he's telling jokes and he is you know, putting everybody at ease and he's laughing louder than everybody. And I think that's what a lot of the musicians like Dizzy and people who had trouble with the stage persona. Once they got to meet him, you know, like Jackie Byard said he was the most natural man and he had ever seen in his life. So it was so natural. Tears came to his eyes. And that's the Armstrong I heard on the tapes. And I realized that this guy put his whole life on tape, 20 years of his life on tape. And my favorite story I always tell is we have a tape where him and his wife get into a pretty knockdown, drag out uh, fight. And she doesn't know he's recording it. And when she does discover it, she tells him to turn off the tape. He tells him to erase the tape. And he says, no, that's for posterity. And to me, that's always been the line, you know, for posterity. So he knew that one day people were going to find his story interesting enough to write about, to explore, to learn about why not be in control of your own story? And so that's where I lean, you know, uh, 
a young white guy from New Jersey born nine years after, you know, Lewis died, I can tell you, oh, that solo is great and you can listen or not. But, you know, if I'm going to really engage in these topics that I tend to engage in, you know, race and drugs and music and mob and whatever else, you know, I want not to put myself in there. I want him to tell, you know, take you through it. And like I said, you know, very few people have read uh, the book that's coming out this summer, but uh, there's a lot of eye-opening stuff in there because mm-hmm. people have spent decades trying to psychoanalyze Armstrong. Like they, they watch his films from the 30s and, you know, he would be the first to admit the parts aren't not great. You know, he's doing these menial parts, playing, you know, stable workers, playing garbage men, you know, it's a typical African-American story in 1930s Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, oh, he must have hated that. And yeah, how infuriating. And he's doing these silly comedic roles where, you know, he's doing dumb dialogue and, oh, what is this man's a genius. And then I dig in there and I find a letter where he's going to make the movie Going Places, which is the one that everybody points to because he sings Jeepers Creepers to a horse in that movie. And he's writing a letter to friends. Oh, I love doing comedy in these movies. And, you know, oh, it's such a great thing. And so that's what I love to do is you can still disagree with him. You can still watch those movies and wince and go, this is terrible. But when you know that he was enjoying himself and he was having the time of his life getting some laughs and he was a ham and he loved being funny. And you know, he didn't find that a, to be a tragic aspect of his life at all. Well, then, you know, you have to kind of do some thinking, you know, you might still not be okay with it, but if he was, well, what, how does that change things? So that's, that's my big thing, both books and pretty much everything I do. Um, you know, he can't speak for himself anymore, but he left us these gifts, these tapes, these letters, these manuscripts, these scrapbooks, and kind of as the gatekeeper to all this, I will lean as heavily as possible to make sure that at least his point of view is heard. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. you think a lot of great highlights, but what about the vulnerabilities that he shows? Are those things that you found as well? Oh, sure. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the one thing you, you hear sometimes, the, the anger that comes out. This was a guy that, that, that you know, suffered fool. I mean, oh, man, uh, what's I got so many stories come through. Glory Alley is one story he makes a film in 1952 where, uh, 51, I'm sorry, where a young white cowboy was coming down and calling all the actors and actresses to the set and using all their property, Miss Carone, you know, Mr. Meeker, you're wanted on set. Then he gets to Armstrong and goes, hey, Satchmo, you better come down. We're going to get Harry James to replace you. Yeah, thinking, oh, Lewis is a good-natured guy. And Lewis chews this guy out. I won't even repeat it, but curses him off. And the only reason we know this story is Lewis tells it on tape uh, to one of his friends, like a month or so after it happened. And uh, he says in the tape, you know, and you hear him bristling, he goes, why do you hand me that shit? Because I'm colored. And so you start hearing the side to him in which, yes, you know, he is approachable. And yes, he is down home and down to earth and wants everyone to love everyone, has a smile for everybody. But, you know, if you disrespect him, and especially in this period where African-Americans were routinely getting disrespected, you know, he had that tough New Orleans upbringing. And so he would lash out if he felt that, you know, Joe Glazer was holding money back. He would call him up and curse him out. If he felt, you know, critics, you know, uh, Leonard Feather is a major character in this next book. You know, Leonard Feather would sit down with him and be like, you know, what, uh, what, re- you know, what are your ultimate records you would take to a desert island? Lewis would tell him and Feather would question him. You know, you would really bring that? And Lewis would go, well, you asked me. What? And then he has, <laughs> so he would vent about the critics. 
So there were those things. And of course, you know, issues of race, you know, that's later on. I kind of covered that in my first book, but uh, he was supremely vulnerable at the end of his life because by the late 60s with Black Power and um, the whole civil rights movement, you know, he had really lost a lot of his African-American fans and he didn't quite understand that. And we have some documents from the last two years, one that people seem to lean on, but it, it needs to be kind of dissected with care because he was in intensive care almost dying at the time and he was filled with this kind of rage but he writes about how much he had done for his race and he had never been appreciated for it and so that hurt him at the end um so yeah he's he's a human being you know he he has an ego he knows there's no musician in the world who can do what he does he, he mentions that on one tape um he wants to be respected for it uh, but you know the wounds are out there and there are times where he lashes out, you know, if you, if you pushed him too far, you know, you, you, you would know it in a hurry. You know, even his wife, Lucia would say, I was one, actually one of the best things about being married to him. You know, there was never any passive aggression. <laughs> there was ne never any games, mind games. He would tell you he would erupt and then he would move on. You know, he wouldn't even bring it up again. You know, it wouldn't even simmer. It would just be out. And so, you know, when you live your life like that, that's why a big part of his onstage thing is what you see is what you get. You know, he, he couldn't fake it. Even the videos we have of him in the recording studio, he's smiling, he's doing the gestures, he's doing all that stuff. It's all real. You know, I mean, people want to make him out to be some kind of phony. It's ridiculous because he is one of the most real figures who ever walked the face of the earth. Choosing to write about somebody, you know, if you find out something that's maybe not, uh, wouldn't cast him in a, in a positive light, do you, do you hold back or do you feel a duty nope. <laughs> to, to write about that? Yeah, no, that, that's one of my fears is that, you know, people know how I feel about him. I love about him. I mean, I, I love him. You know, I've devoted my life to him. There's, there's, yeah, so there's obviously going to be some, some bias in what I write, but I'm very uh, fearful, I guess, is the right word. I don't know. I'm just very cautious that people don't say that I'm just churning out hey geography and oh you know it's a love letter and all this kind of stuff so part of it is you know telling his story from his own words and sometimes his own words get him into trouble but it's like hey you know, now you know how he felt about it it might not be great but now you know um, this common book has him and his third wife getting into physical altercations has him cheating on his fourth wife um, there's some definite moments of stubbornness there, uh, him butting heads with Sidney Bechet, butting heads with Coleman Hawkins. Um, so I, you know, I don't hold any of that back. I think, you know, we're here to learn from this figure. We're not here to worship him. Um, actually the, um, the, the quote that opens the book, uh, you know, right before the, the first page is him saying that he didn't want to be, uh, a, he didn't want to be God. You know, he just wants to play good music. And um, I think that's important. You know, we, you know, we can't treat him like this flawless, perfect figure who had no flaws. And we could all just, you know, learn from him like Jesus. Yeah, we could learn from him. But, you know, sometimes you learn the right way. Sometimes you learn the wrong way. And so I don't, I don't see my job being, you know, just kind of, you know, always, always look the best. I mean, I'm obviously going to come out on the positive side more than yeah, the, the negative, but I, I don't shy away from the negatives at all. Well, I think that shows us humanity, right? The, that it's not all just uh, like they say these days, you know, unicorns and kittens. It's, uh, you know, right. the good, the bad, and the ugly.
and all that. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he, yeah, and that's the one thing where a lot of the characters in the book that I wrote right, coming up right now, you know, a lot, a lot of people just want to put people into good and bad boxes, you know, oh, he was bad, he was good, and that's it. And so the books about Louis Armstrong, you know, I think his positives outweigh the negatives, but you read some stuff there and you might wince and be like, ooh. And then I have a lot on his manager, Joe Glazer. And I really dig deep into Glazer's background. Not a good guy, not, not a good guy. But then I dig deep into his business decisions and what he did for Armstrong's career. And it's undeniable. He saved his career. And, you know, and so it's like, well, here is a guy who has a human who, you know, shouldn't look up to him. But, you know, what he did, you can't deny it. I mentioned the critic Leonard Feather. I beat him up a few times in the book. But then a few times, you know, after I beat him up, it's like, but he was right. <laughs> the way he went about it was wrong. But in the end, he was right. And so I do think that humans are complex. You know, no one is right 100% of the time. No one is good 100% of the time. And so I think um, studying Lewis and even writing this book, there's a lot of larger than life figures there that you can't just paint with a broad brush. Like Lewis Armstrong is the good guy. Joe Glazer is the bad guy. And it's like, no, no, no. You got to dig deep, read between the lines, read it all, you know, and make your own conclusions. Mm -hmm. So at what point do you cover the years up to 1928? I mean, the wheels are already turned. Yeah. that. <laughs> I don't have a deal in place or anything, but that, that is where I need to go next. I know it. Uh, those were always the years I wanted to avoid. Like I said, I never thought I was going to write about the middle years. That was something that just kind of popped up and just fit so beautifully but now there's like this gaping hole it's like oh god and the reason i mean no one ever did a better job than him at his early years i mean satchmo my life in new orleans is my favorite autobiography uh but i'm the first to realize that you know he had kind of a selective memory and so uh, it would be nice to kind of roll up my sleeves and uh try to play detective and separate fact from fiction about those early years and then the 1920 stuff, like I said, uh, part of me when I got into this racket, I felt like that stuff was so overanalyzed. You know, Gunther Schiller and, you know, Thomas Brothers, all those people have done so much in the 20s. But I also know that I have Lewis's words, you know, which a lot of people haven't had access to. And I have my own theories. You know, a lot of my theories, um, one of my main theories that all my books are kind of grounded in is that there's this consistency to Armstrong's life. You know, when I got into him, I had to continuously read about the cutoff, the 1928 cutoff where he was a serious artist before that making instrumental masterpieces. And then he flips the switch and becomes this pop star. And then it wasn't until I started digging through the newspaper articles that reviewed his live music in the 20s, where you find he's doing comedy routines, he's doing routines in drag, he's doing impersonating preachers, he's doing Noel Coward songs, he's doing Broadway songs. This is all during the Hot Five and Hot Seven era. Um, and so there really is this kind of consistent pattern, which he's always keeping up with the times. He's always doing the, the pop songs of the day. He's always putting his own spin on it. He's always adding comedy to it. And it's even there, the hot fives, not sevens. You know, a lot of the early reissues handpicked 
you know, cornet chop suey and potato head blues and gully low blues and, and yeah, and it would form a certain thing. And then you back up and listen to like the complete hot fives and you hear them playing a slide whistle or you hear, you know, King of the Zulus or the square dance routine on Big Fat Mons, Skinny Pie, and you realize, no, no, comedy and showmanship's always there. And so having said that, I there's a part of me that would really like to tackle the, uh, the 1920s period and kind of, um, you know, do my thing with it, you know, argue for not just the trumpet masterpieces, which are inarguable, but also kind of paint this broader picture of what is he doing day by day? You know, what's in his repertoire? What is he listening to? What is he playing? And I think once people dig into that, they'll, they'll realize about this consistency, how his whole life is just kind of devoted to good music, not caring about what style it is, and uh, you know, always giving 100%. You've got all these resources with the archives, the tapes, the the interviews that you've done. So when you go to do those early years, I mean, what kind of resources exist for that? We do have the manuscript for his autobiography. This was a recent addition to the collection. Um, in 2016, the son of his editor, Prentice Hall, contacted us and said, I've got uh, like a Louis Armstrong book here. Are you interested? If not, I'm going to toss it. I said, well, sure. So if you're going to donate it, send it to us at the archives. And he sends it. And it's like this greenish yellow onion skin paper. And it's 120 pages. And it's the full manuscript that Louis Armstrong typed. No ghostwriter, no co-author. And so uh, one of our, our employees, actually, Adriana Philstrip, she's actually gotten her master's degree comparing it to the, the finished book. And so uh, it would be fun to access and quote that. Um, then we have other manuscripts that he wrote about those years. There's also a friend of mine, James Karst, down in New Orleans, has done unbelievable research into finding mentions of Lewis in the early newspapers um, that he's written about, but a lot it hasn't really appeared in any biography. So that would be great. In the 20s, we have scrapbooks. There are interviews with the musicians who played like in King Oliver's band and stuff like that, that I feel like you know, have not been really relied on too heavily. Um, I, I, but having said all that, I will say the abundance of sources that I had for the first two books won't be there for the third book. Both of these books, I came so over the word count limit. It was kind of comical. Um, my first book, they wanted about 140,000 words. And my first draft was 180,000. I had to get it down to 145. And then that, that passed. This book, they said, well, you're only writing about this little chunk of his life. Can you do it in 110,000? And my first draft, no joke, was 292,000 words. It was every step of his life that every time he breathed, I had something about it. But I, I knew it. I, I just wanted to kind of vomit it all out. So it was there. But I knew that it was not readable it was so but, boring but how do you and decide so, what to take out you know if you that's the funny part pull. that's the funny part i had two hundred ninety-two thousand words and i said all right now i'm gonna read it like like someone off the street and we're starting page one and it's incredible how you find the places where the pace just kind of drags or i've already made that point once and now i've made it four other times and so i started on page one deleting as I went. And when I finished, you know, without adding anything, the second draft, I went from 292,000 words to 170. And then from there, I said, all right, let's do it again. Started on page one, to the end, got down to 145. And then I think I got it as low as 1, 
35. Like the last 10,000 words were hard. <laughs> I'll admit that I need to rely on a few readers and being like, is there anything that can go and shoving some stuff in the footnotes? The footnotes section is a book in itself. Um, but yeah, it, Oxford read it. And even though my contract said 110,000, they said, no, this is good stuff. And so they, they agreed to put it out at 135. That's the thing. These books I'm writing, I will never say these are the end all be all the last word on the subject, because I know what I've left out. You know, I know I've left out hundreds of thousands of words uh, and research documents from both books. So I hope that one day another Armstrong researcher can pick up the slack or get a, you know, get a contract to write a 2000 page volume and really, really go day by day. But like I said, I like telling stories. And I think, I think that's why, you know, because I would post about this on Facebook. Facebook and people are like, no, 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 publish the 292,000 word version. And it's like, that's a, that's a great research document. But again, I really want to lure in those, those regular readers. I want it to be, you know, no, no dull moments. You know, let's, let's, let's tell some stories, have some fun and, and keep the pace moving. And so, you know, there are some recordings that uh, the finished book has maybe three sentences where I originally had three paragraphs. And so there's some stuff there that, that hurt, uh, you know, some stuff did not get the full, the full mm-hmm. attention. But like I said, you know, I, I'm proud of the finished products and uh, I hope they inspire people to, to dig deeper. So along the way, I'm curious, you know, you're researching Lewis and you're, you're going to uh, uh, the surviving members, um, any, any family members that uh, you were able to reach out to? God bless Facebook. Through Facebook, I am friends with the descendants of Barrett Deems and Danny Barcelona and Billy Kyle and Kid Ori and uh, there's more Trummy Young's daughter donated Trummy scrapbooks to the archives. And it's an incredible thing. Um, Buddy Catlett's daughter, um, Marty Napoleon's family I've been in touch with, Mm -hmm. Joe Moraney's kids I'm still friends with. Um, it's wild, it, you know, it, it's wild because there's all these kids now that have memories of Lewis or, or, you know, remember the band bus or remember things. Um, and like I said, some of them have donated stuff, which has been tremendous. Others don't really have much, but they've been very nice to con- connect with. But I think it's good. It keeps, it keeps kind of, you know, the, the family thing going because that was another thing that inspired me early on as I would read these books by James Lincoln Collier, by Lawrence Burgreen, other Armstrong, by even people I like, Gary Giddens and all that stuff. And I would never see the all-stars quoted. I'd be like, these people were on the bus night in and night out for years. And, you know, I started writing in 03. One of the things that really kicked my butt is I started Rutgers in 03. And in 02, Arvel Shaw died and Joe Bushkin died and Jack Lesberg died. Three all-stars died right before I started. And I was always like, ah, oh, I couldn't, I can't believe I didn't get to them. But I'd always shake my head and be like, you know, when there was 20 all-stars, you know, in the 1970s and early 80s, why weren't they all being asked for oral histories and interviews and that kind of stuff? The current book was harder. I can actually say, I don't think I did a single in-person interview. This this new book coming out is purely based on the original contemporary research and the oral histories. Rutgers and the Smithsonian have an amazing jazz oral history project that began in the 70s. And there's people like Mill Tinton and Billy Taylor and all these, and Dan Morgenstern and others. But I was able to get so many quotes 
from Charlie Holmes, the alto saxophonist. And, you know, I mean, I can name them, but all, all the musicians who played uh, in the band, also the BBC had some uh, interviews that Lewis, uh, for a documentary on Lewis in the early 70s, they found a bunch of people. So I'm very lucky because sitting here now, there's nobody left from the big band and there's only one all-star left. So, and there's only a couple of friends, you know, Dan Morgenstern's around, Jack Bradley's around, but the actual people who knew and worked with Armstrong are few and far between, which is why, thank God for these oral histories and for Rutgers and for places like that, that was able to get to so many musicians at the time. Um, so that, that, that's really what I leaned on this time around. And also digitization changed the game. When I, when I wrote mm -hmm. my first book, I was still going to the Institute of Jazz Studies. I was still photocopying everything. Then I would organize it chronologically. Then I would put it, hole punch it, put it in binders. And I would have these, I still have them, these giant fat binders going year by year, newspaper coverage and microfilm and all that. Writing this book, I barely had to leave my house. Because uh, at the Armstrong House, we got a $2.7 million grant to digitize the whole collection. And so anybody could actually access that, that, but all the scrapbook pages, all the tapes, they're all on um, collections.lewisarmstronghouse.org. You can create a free account and explore it. So I would do all that, you know, off the clock, but then I got a subscription to newspapers.com. I got a subscription to mm -hmm. newspaperarchives.com. Uh, every billboard's online. Every old variety is online. Uh, ProQuest has the black newspaper uh, subscription series and it was crazy. And actually, I, there's a part of me that wants to rewrite my first book <laughs> because the amount of stuff I've stumbled across in researching this book, it's like, oh my God, I wish I knew that at the time. So uh, God bless, you know, this digital world we live in that, you know, I barely had to interview anybody or leave my house or go to an archive, but I think it's the most thoroughly researched thing I've ever done. <laughs> It's <laughs> incredible. Oh, so many questions. Uh, well, let me ask this one. Uh, well, it's at the front of my uh, head here is while you're researching and talking to these others, is there somebody that sticks in your mind like, okay, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going after this person? Because is there somebody else that, that fascinates you that you want to start? Yes. Uh, my, my pet passion project is Slim Gaylord. Uh, Slim, um, if you know, I mean, in the 1930s, he's got this kind of space cadet career. In the 30s, he was slim and slam, doing songs like the Flatfoot Fluji and all these kind of swing things. Uh, then he goes to World War II, which is a story in itself, comes back, does the Charlie Parker session with the, you know, Slim's Jam and everything. By the 50s, he's at Birdland. And in the late 50s, 60s, he's making like these uh, early rock and roll records, R&B records. His daughter marries Marvin Gaye. He kind of disappears. And he has his whole last act in London, rediscovered by David Bowie and all these people. Uh, his last album is a 1991 full-blown hip-hop record with the Dream Warriors, a Canadian hip-hop mm -hmm. group. And then he dies in 91. And his, his life, uh, BBC did a special on him that was supposed to be one hour in about 1998 or 89. And it ended up being four hours. And uh, uh, I got a copy of it years ago through some underground sources and it was just mind-blowing and so I've been able to bef befriend two of Slim's kids and I co-produced a major Slim uh, reissue for Universal a couple of years ago called Groove Juice and I wrote the liner notes for uh, another Slim release that Zev Feldman put out a couple of years ago so 
I do feel like there's a fun story there. It'll be one volume, one book, and a lot of detective work because he told a lot of people a lot of different stories. Um, mm -hmm. I actually tried writing that one after my first Armstrong book. I'm like, well, now I'm done with Armstrong, so now I can move on. Uh, but there wasn't quite <laughs> as much interest in Slim Gaylord as Louis Armstrong. But I think that's changing, and now I've been able to work so much with the family and all that stuff. Um, but first, first things first, I would like to finish the Armstrong story. And then, um, if I could knock out a book on slim, that would be a lot of fun. And then after that, I don't know. Um, I was very close with the producer, George Avakian, and I feel like he deserves a story, but my good friend, Matt Snyder at New York public library is putting together an anthology of George's writing. So that, that might be enough. Um, we'll see what the future brings, you know, but, uh, yeah, as long as there's topics out there to research and write about, sign me up. <laughs> so people like Byron Stripling, you know, who has already got, uh, you know, some great knowledge about Lewis. Uh, how did how did the two of you come together? Or how, does he know about, uh, well, I, I asked the question. So tell me how that happened. Uh, Byron came to me through the book. I've been a fan for as long as I can remember, because that's the one thing I got into Armstrong in high school but I soon and I soon went down the jazz rabbit hole but I, I also discovered living breathing musicians and always wanted you know where I live is about an hour and a half from New York but even in high school you know making trips into jazz Lincoln Center into this and that you know was always very important to me and I saw Byron at Milton's uh, 90th birthday concert and uh, he did Minnie the Moocher and he was fantastic and that that opened up the floodgates I remember buying his uh, CDs, a couple of Armstrong tribute CDs, a couple of his own CDs on the German label, Nagelheimer. And so you can imagine my surprise, um, my first book comes out and I get this beautiful letter from Byron Stripling. And it turns out that Ken Poplowski, the great clarinetist, who again, I was a fan of for years, but never met, Ken found my book first and then told Byron uh, he should read it. And then Byron read it was so moved. He, he reached out to me and he wrote an Amazon review, which you can still, you can still see there. And we've been pals ever since, you know, um, we booked him to play the Armstrong house. We have these summer garden concerts and he played for us a couple of years ago. And uh, just, you know, if, if there's a modern day Lewis who just exudes, you know, the po positivity and charisma and chops and everything else, uh, he's, he's gotta be on that list. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a beautiful friendship. Uh, I first met Byron a couple of years ago. He was here with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. He and Carmen Bradford were doing their uh, Louis and Ella tribute, nice. and I'm in the trumpet section. I, I, I'm not a full-time member there, but I happened to be subbing in that week. And I told him, uh, Byron, when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, I said, I didn't want to play my horn. I, I said, you know, you walked on stage, and Byron has this ability, unique ability, to have people in the palm of his hand yep. right when he steps on stage. It's just... I mean, he's a fantastic musician, but that I think, you know, puts him over the top. And that's exactly what I told him. And so I'm listening to him play and I'm thinking, this, this is fantastic. Now, you know, and he even told me, he goes, I don't try to be exactly like Lewis, but I try to pay him tribute. And I do certain things throughout my show when he, when he does that uh, to pay tribute. Uh, and then there's somebody else, Bria Schoenberg, yeah. uh, who I think is just terrific. Uh, I think... You close your eyes. I think you hear it. You really hear yeah. It. So and I so the smile on your face tells me you probably agree with that. Oh, big time. Yeah. Now Bria uh, was always kind of like this uh, 
mythological figure <laughs> early on. Like, yeah, I would talk to people on the New York trad jazz scene, people on the Boston trad jazz scene. They'd be like, do you know Bria? Like, no. Oh, my God, young, you know, trumpet player. But my goodness, you know, she's got the spirit and she plays just, you know, the drive, the sound. And the first time I saw a video uh, was uh, my friend Michael Steinman runs the Jazz Lives blog. And he, he would always be at the ear in and he filmed this crazy jam session. I don't think it was New Year's Eve or something, about 10 years ago. And every musician in New York was there and they're playing Tiger Ag. And it got to the last break and then Bria breaks through the, this cacophony and, and plays Lewis's break from the 1925 uh, Cakewalk and Babies from Home. And I just, all right. I said, that's great. And so I remember I reached out to her not too long after that. And um, we've actually become great friends ever since. Um, m one of my best friends in the world is David Ostwald, who runs the, the weekly Louis Armstrong Eternity Band over at Birdland. And David uh, immediately grabbed onto Bria. Bria became, you know, I think maybe his first choice trumpet player for for many years. But she's been a fixture at the Armstrong House performing many concerts until now. She's kind of one of the heads of our of our education department, mm -hmm. you know, bringing in teaching artists, uh, coming up with uh, lesson plans for what to teach the students and, and that kind of stuff. So she's really become almost our our, our mascot, you could say, at the Armstrong mm -hmm. House. And, and when I, I teach these Music of Louis Armstrong courses, this is always one of the highlights of my life. I teach a Music of Louis Armstrong course at Queens College for grad students, for jazz performance majors getting their master's degrees. And they've never really listened to Armstrong and they've never really listened to any jazz before bebop. And so now they have to spend mm -hmm. 15 weeks with me going down the Armstrong rabbit hole. And I always bring Bria in and we do kind of a New Orleans ensemble 101 class. And she is just such a natural educator. And, you know, she makes it fun. You know, she everyone's laughing and keeping it light. But these world-class musicians who are getting their master's degree all of a sudden you realize we are they're trying to play the saints go marching in and they're bumping into each other in the ensembles and yeah you you play the trombone part you play the clarinet part oh it's a yeah, but so yeah so she she's the best and uh i mean her career is really kind of exploding these days no one deserves it more she posted something on facebook uh, not too long ago a couple weeks and uh I was reading down into the comments and somebody said, Hey, great work. Keep practicing. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, just, you know, I mean, somebody, I don't know if they were trolling her or right. somebody who just had no clue that, that she's paid her dues. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah without a doubt. I wanted to say something else about uh, Byron. He told me about the Armstrong house and how, uh, it's accessible to anybody, right? You have to just make an appointment, right? But he said he's he's seen that when people walk in, they just overwhelmed yeah. with with that. And you've experienced that. It's incredible, yeah. The, the actual Armstrong House, I mean, we've been open now since 2003, and that, that's really our main operation. I mean, right now we're closed because of the virus, but when things were normal, we were open five days a week, and people would come from around the world. And... I mean, we get a lot of international visitors and they would come straight from the airport and drop their bags in our, you know, little welcome area and just start crying. And then on the tour, it's like, if that doesn't get you, 
when you're on the tour and the docent leads you through the house room by room, everything is 100% original, just as it was when Lewis and Lucille were there. But then we play audio clips. And so you could hear Lewis speaking in the room, speaking in his den, speaking in the living room. And I mean, I've seen grown men cry and, you know, we get students, school groups every day. It's really a powerful experience. Um, like I said, that's our main operation. My side, the archives are still at Queens College right now. That's open by appointment only. But same thing, you know, I'm, I'm the guardian of the trumpets. So, you know, Byron's come by and played the trumpets, other trumpet players, you name them, they, they've all come by. And as long as they bring a mouthpiece, they can, they can try out the horns. And that, that goes for you too, of course. <laughs> but the, the exciting thing is we're about a year away. I don't want to jinx it, but we're about a year away from opening a new building across the street from the house. And the construction has been ongoing since about early 2018. It's been a million delays and now the virus slowed it down a bit, but um, it's gonna be kind of a cultural center directly across the street from the Armstrong house. And so the archives are gonna move to the second floor. That'll be the whole second floor of the building. Mm -hmm. But the first floor is gonna be the state-of-the-art exhibit area curated by Jason Moran. It's gonna be a performance space, gift shop, the whole thing. And so the goal is in about a year, you'll be able to come to 107th Street in Queens and really make a day of it. You know, buy your ticket, see the exhibit area, which will have interactive experiences, you know, headphone experiences, video experiences, uh, walk across the street, take a tour of the house, maybe make an appointment, do some research upstairs and meet at the archives or in the evening if we have a concert or something, mm -hmm. there'll be a Steinway piano, a 72 seat room. And so um, we're very excited about you know, the future. I think the interest in Armstrong is growing all the time and you know, we're, we're in the right place at the right time. Well, and folks are certainly helping with that. We're trying. I think, I think it all works together. I think when you look at where Armstrong's reputation was in say the mid eighties, like when his wife Lucille died, she died in 83. And that same year, James Lincoln Collier put out his book, Louis Armstrong, an American genius that, I think, and Dan Morgenstern and many others think is the most mean-spirited jazz biography ever written. And that's, that's the book where a lot of the stuff I said earlier comes in. I never as a genius, so failed as talent. And I found contemporary reviews of that book. I was waiting for somebody to say it. Uh, Dan Morgenstern wrote an incredible takedown of it. But in the m regular media, I was like, uh, yep, very good book, well-researched, tells the story of Louis Armstrong as it is. I was like, oh my God, nobody questioned it. And so I do think... Lucille dies in 83, and then everything is turned over to Queens College. And the first person to actually have access to the house after Lucille died was Gary Giddens. And Gary's the first person to go through the letters and the manuscripts, and he finds all this stuff. And he writes his book, which comes out in 88. And so you've, you use that as the starting point. And then after that, he puts out the PBS documentary in 89. The Armstrong archives opened up in 94. Winton's talking about Lewis all the time, and he has a whole week on Lewis in 95. Ken Burns jazz makes Lewis the central figure in 2000. The Armstrong House opens up in 03. Terry Teachout's book goes on the bestseller list in 09. My two books now. And I feel like where Armstrong is now <laughs> compared to where he was in the mid 80s, I think the only thing that really changed were people now have more access to him. They can read his writings. They can listen to him talk. They can hear him like I said, vulnerable, they could hear him angry, they could hear him laughing. And uh, it's opened up so many roads for so many researchers. Uh, I say this all the time, but I think we're still at the beginning. I think 50 years from now, mm -hmm. it'll be, you know, no one will even contest it. Like me, I, 
when I first got into it, I would give these lectures and I would open up by reading from James Lincoln Collier and reading from Gunther Schiller and reading from people who called Lewis and Uncle Tom. And uh, then I would, you know, rebut all that. And after a few years, David Oswald actually pushed me aside and was like, pulled me aside and said, you know, not everybody feels that way. I think, I think people, you know, they don't really, the judgment isn't automatically Louis Armstrong, Uncle, Uncle Tom sellout, you know, like his, he's in a better standing now. And so I think 50 years from now, you know, historians will find it interesting that people mm -hmm. during his lifetime were full of hate and malice and criticized every movie made and every recording he made and you know all this stuff but I think when they say you know who are the greats it's going to be Shakespeare it's going to be Mozart it's going to be Louis Armstrong I think and, and no one will argue that I think um, when I teach this course at Queens College it becomes so apparent not just to the students but you know even they, they tell people about it. it's just like this is the most definitive life of the 20th century you know, you want, you want media, you want music, you want race, you want poverty, you want, you know, rags to riches, you, you want, it's all there. And so I do think we're going to hit a point where he is taught in schools, you know, where, you know, Ron Howard's making a high profile documentary right now. Uh, mm -hmm. There's rumors of film biopics. And so all this momentum on and on and on, I think uh, it's incredible to, you can't find it in any other artist born in 1901. You know, this level of respect. Mm -hmm. I love Duke Ellington. I love Bing Crosby. And I love everybody else. They're not they're not at this level anymore where Armstrong is still getting six million listens a month on Spotify and books are still coming uh -huh. out. And we're building cultural centers for twenty three million dollars. So he's not going anywhere. He'll be around for a long time. Ricky, I wish you were a little more passionate about this. <laughs> I, I, I wish I, I didn't have to just pull words out of you, you know, and, and beg and plead for you to share something. I, this, this, has been, this has been fantastic, you know, I, and I can't wait to, to get this out and, and other people to hear it. But thank you for everything you shared. Today. I mean, this is the absolutely fascinating. And I can't wait to, to meet you in person and, you know, have you do a uh, a talk, you know, one of our conferences here, but uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes, just wind me up and go, and and yeah, and, exactly and then I hope to see you when this all passes in New York. You know, make sure you have your mouthpiece, and we'll we'll have some fun with those trumpets. Sounds good. All right, <laughs> thank you. Thanks everybody for listening to today's interview. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll come back next week for another great interview. Just a reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash studio h-f-l you can become a subscriber for as little as three dollars a month or a sponsor for as much as 20 to 50 dollars a month i'd like to thank again the sponsors for this podcast messina covers the eastman music company and picket blackburn all three companies providing excellence in their products and customer service be sure to check them out at MessinaCovers.net, the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com, and Pickett Blackburn at PicketBlackburn.com. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>